Welcome to this week's episode of Behind the Scenes at Blenheim Palace. Now, I don't have a special guest this week, um, so I'm afraid you're just going to have to put up with me. Um, and I'm going to talk to you about some of the saints, sinners and scoundrels that have walked through the palace doors over the last 300 years. I recently really, really enjoyed watching Bridgerton and it just made me think, my goodness, we have our own cast of Bridgerton at Blenheim Palace. So sit back and listen and see who you think are the saints, the sinners and the scoundrels. This young lady, her name um, was Arabella Churchill and she was the Duke of Marlborough's older sister. Now, I'm going to have to go back a little bit just to explain um, a few things. She was the older sister of John Churchill. Their father was the very first Winston Churchill. And Winston made a slight error of judgment, let's say, and he backed the royalists um, rather than the parliamentarians when Charles I lost his head. And he forfeited his land and his wealth. Um, when the monarchy was reinstated, what happened was that um, his children began to find places at court. And Arabella was a rather comely young lady, and she was a maid of honour. Now, if ever there was a misnomer, then it's the term maid of honour. Um, the maids of honour were there allegedly to carry out the same sort of duty um, as a manservant was would carry out to his master. So a maid of honour would look after her mistress. What they also did was to kind of furnish the young men at court with a little bit of sport. And Arabella Churchill was a maid of honour to the Duchess of York. Duke of York later became James II, so he was um, Charles II's brother. And Arabella wasn't a silly lady. And she knew that she had charms that she could use to her advantage. And she had a very shapely pair of legs. So one day when they were out riding and she was in company with the Duke of York, she took very great care to take a graceful tumble from her horse. Her skirts went up over her head. He was smitten by her shapely legs and they became very, very special friends to the extent that she had four children by him. Um, they eventually married, not to each other. Um, Arabella married um, Colonel Charles Godfrey. So she'd had four children with the Duke of York and they all bore the surname Fitzjames. So he was James, Duke of York. And um, the uh, prefix Fitz indicated that this was a child of royal illegitimate birth, so Fitzjames, and then she had a further three children with her husband. So Arabella actually um, had quite a strong position at court and it served very well when her brother, John Churchill, first Duke of Marlborough, not that he was first Duke of Marlborough when he went to court, when he did come to court it didn't do him any harm to have Arabella there. Now John Churchill was a very handsome young man um, and you can imagine that he was very popular at court and his eye fell upon this lady, Barbara Villiers. Now Barbara Villiers 
was already a very special friend of Charles II. And um, she was his favorite mistress. But nevertheless, well, nonetheless, John Churchill and Barbara Villiers started a relationship. And there is a story that they were at Hampton Court when the king actually discovered them in the bedchamber. Um, and he, he took, took it all in good heart and he hammered on the door and he shouted, go to it, you rogue. You have to earn your living somehow. And in fact, what happened, um, Barbara Villiers bore John Churchill's first child, a daughter, also called Barbara. Um, and she paid him or gave him a gift of £5,000, which in those days, in the late um, 18, sorry, 1600s, was an awful lot of money. And it meant that he could actually invest the money and it produced an annuity for him. But in later years, Barbara was heard to remark that she paid much for very little service. So I think you have to make of that what you will. Now, I mentioned before that the court wasn't a place of very high morals at this time. And to the court came a young lady called Sarah Jennings. Um, her sister was already a maid of honour at court, and Sarah was there between the ages of 13 and 18, and she was born in 1660. And um, she was paid £20 a year, but it cost her more than that to actually keep that position because you had to be able to dress accordingly and you know have suitable jewels and all the rest of it. Um, now, she and John were very attracted to one another, she and John Churchill. And John Churchill had other people in mind for a wife because on paper, Sarah wasn't a terribly good match. And in those days, marriage was very, very much a business transaction and you got out of it as much as you could. So on paper, she wasn't a great catch. But John was head over heels in love with her and she with him. And in fact, she held out and she said that if... You know, his happiness was in, in his own hands. So in other words, if he wanted the relationship to progress, then he needed to put a ring on a finger. And eventually he did. And I have to say, I'm sure there are those amongst you that have seen the film The Favourite um, with Olivia Colman as Queen Anne and Rachel Weiss as Sarah, Duchess of Marlborough. And in it... Um, they make out that there was a um, lesbian relationship between the two and Sarah Jennings. Now, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind from what I've read that Sarah and John were absolutely devoted to one another. And just to give you an idea, um, there's a little snatch from a letter that Sarah writes to her husband while he's away on campaign. Um, and he was frequently away. And he said, she says, wherever you are, whilst I have life, my soul shall follow you, my ever dear Lord Marlborough. And wherever I am, I should only kill the time, wish for night that I may sleep, and hope the next day to hear from you. So I think that speaks volumes. What spoke even more to me was 
When John died in 1722, Sarah was left a widow, obviously. And she was a very, very wealthy widow by that time. Um, and she received a couple of proposals of marriage. And one of them was from the Duke of Somerset. And uncharacteristically for Sarah, but she was, she was quite a sparky individual, uh, to say the least. She actually let him down quite gently. And she, she went as far as to find another suitable match for him. But she wrote to him and said, if I were young and handsome as I was, instead of old and faded as I am, and you could lay the empire of the world at my feet, you should never share the heart and head that once belonged to John Edward Marlborough. So even half after his death, in her lonely years, she, she, there was no one that could compare to him. So I think that's, that's a rather nice story. And as I say, they did get married and they had a brood of children. Um, and these are just four of their daughters and one of their sons. They actually had a, their first child, um, Harriet, died as an infant. And they had another son who died as a toddler. Um, and very sadly, the son that you can see on the right here also predeceased parents. And so the dukedom looked as though it was going to die out before it had even become established. But because of the friendship between Sarah and the Queen, a special act of Parliament had been passed, which enabled the title, Duke of Marlborough, to go to and through the female line. Now, if you think this was back in the early 1700s, just cast your mind back a few years to when William and Kate were expecting their first child. And there was a huge debate over whether their firstborn, if it were a girl, would have been next in line to the throne. And eventually it was decreed that, yes, if Prince George had been a girl, she would have been next in line. This family had it, had it sussed years ago. So what happened when John died in 1722, the title went to his daughter, Henrietta, and his eldest daughter, and you can see her here. Now, I'm a huge fan of Jane Austen, and Pride and Prejudice is one of my favourite books. And I kind of, I laughed at um, Alison Steadman when she played Mrs. Bennet, and she was so concerned to get her daughters married. But of course, in reality, that's how a woman would be well cared for to make a good marriage. And um, Sarah was just like Mrs. Bennet in that respect. And she made sure that Henrietta, when it was her time, made a good marriage. And she married, this, so Henrietta's on the left, and she married this gentleman here, Francis Godolphin. And Francis Godolphin was the son of one of their oldest and dearest friends, Sidney Godolphin, who was the Lord High Treasurer, um, the Prime Minister as we call him today. So Francis was a thoroughly decent man, thoroughly decent, boring men in England. And so it was noted that if you were at a gathering of any sort and Francis Godolphin walked into the room and people would disappear as though by magic, the only thing that he really loved was his racehorses. And in fact, he founded the Godolphin stables at Newmarket 
and um, introduced the thoroughbred to this country. So he was a great racing man. Henrietta had, um, gave him an heir, um, a son, William, or Willigo, as he was known. And when William was born, Henrietta's message to her husband was, go tell the fool I have got him an heir. So I think from that, you can tell that the marriage was about to run into trouble. And so, in fact, Henrietta's fancy fell upon this gentleman here, with his wonderful wig and his velvet jacket. And this was the playwright, William Congreve. So best known, I think, for the line, hell hath no fury like, and I'm sure you're all saying at home, a woman scorned. So that was one of his best lines. Um, now, it wasn't unusual for people to have extramarital affairs at this time, as I'm sure you realise. But it was all about the discretion with which you carried on these affairs. And unfortunately, Henrietta chose not to be terribly discreet. She and her mother didn't get on, and that's probably an understatement. But then Sarah didn't get on with many people. And I think sometimes the only reason that she and the Duke remained on such good terms was that he was away on campaign for a lot of the time. Um, but anyway, that's another story. So they didn't get on. And Sarah was further incensed when Henrietta returned from taking the waters at Bath and returned with a tiny child. And this little baby in arms was called Mary and she was William Congreve's child. Now, William Congreve was killed in a carriage accident. Um, Francis Godolphin, being a thoroughly decent man, no matter how boring, was actually one of the pallbearers at his funeral. And he, he brought Mary up as his own child. Congreve left most of his estate to Henrietta. And when she died, she left all of Congreve's estate to Mary. So it really was no secret that Mary was their child and also that Henrietta had been a very, very special friend of William Congreve. Now, this is a picture of the memorial to Congreve that Henrietta had erected in Westminster Abbey, and it is absolutely vast. You can't miss it, and it is not discreet. Um, and it actually says on it that it was set up by Henrietta, Duchess of Marlborough, um, as a mark of how dearly she remembered the happiness and honour she enjoyed in the sincere friendship of William Congreve. And Sarah's comment was, there was no honour in that friendship. Now, when Congreve died, um, Henrietta became slightly unhinged. And um, in her grief, she had a wax mannequin made of him. It was a full-size mannequin. So it was wherever um, Henrietta was, the mannequin was as well. And it had a, a kind of ulcer on its leg that could be treated by the apothecary. And if you were invited to dine with Henrietta, then Congreve would sit at the table with you. And he was fashioned in such a way that um, you could just put a little sweetmeat into his mouth. 
So um, the technology of, of those days was incredible, really. And I'll leave you there with that one. So Henrietta was the second Duchess of Marlborough in her own right. Um, Duke number three was her nephew, Charles Spencer. Um, and really the only thing that he did right or wrong or that was notable was that he married someone called Elizabeth Trevor, who Sarah didn't have a good word to say about and uh, commented that she was ill-bred and had bad teeth. And her view was that the breeding might improve or the manners might improve and do an awful lot about her teeth. So we're going to leave those alone for the moment and we're going to go on to the next family that um, I'm going to talk to you about. And these really, the fourth Duke of Marlborough and his family, as you can see here by um, a painting by Joshua Reynolds, these were some of my favourite people. They, um, he became Duke in 1758 um, and he was only 19 at the time. And they were the first family to live at Blenheim full time. And they really lived in the entire palace. And you can imagine the, the shouts and laughter of, of the children echoing down the corridors. And he was a very indulgent father. And it became very fashionable in the later part of the 1700s. He put on theatricals, shows and plays um, for your neighbours. Now, um, I have children and they loved to dress up and put on shows for me when they were little. And I used to give them a box and a sheet, say, off you go, go and get on with it. Now, the Duke went a bit further than that. He converted the orangery at Blenheim into a 200-seater theatre, seated theatre. And they would put on a, a play once or twice a year, and they would sell tickets to the great and the good in the area, and they would perform. And it was a rather lovely thing to do. There weren't enough of them to fill all the roles in the plays that they had. And so they would invite, occasionally the servants would take part, um, but they also invited students and dons from Oxford University, which of course was just next door. And if you look at the little girl in front here um, in the peach colored dress, her name was Charlotte. And Charlotte fell in love with one of these Oxford, and his name was um, Charles Edward. Sorry, not Charles at all. It was Edward Nares, and Edward Nares was a don at Oxford. He was a professor, but of course, that wasn't quite aristocratic enough for Caroline, the Duchess. I mean, look at her. Look how proud she is, and um, she was reputed to be one of the proudest women in England. And when they asked permission to marry, um, they were refused. Now, eventually they did marry um, against her parents' wishes. And the only way they were allowed to marry was on condition that Charlotte never set foot in Blenheim Palace again. So they were married. Um, Charlotte had several children, only one of whom survived, a little girl called Martha Elizabeth. And she died, five, Charlotte died five years after they were married and before they could be reconciled. And the Duke's sister, um, one of the Lady Diana Spencers in the family, wrote about it and she said, poor thing, the story is too horrid to write. Her husband, Edward, 
behaved with utmost affection, others not so. Her parents' hard-heartedness helped break her heart. I fear they are really become callous to all. Um, but them, sorry, they are really are become callous to all but themselves. And when I say they, I mean more particularly the female, meaning the Duchess. So what happened, the Duchess eventually died. She died before the Duke. And when she did die, Edward and his little girl were welcome in the palace. And the Duke um, arranged for Charlotte's body to be removed from Ardley, where it was buried, and interned in the Blenheim vault next to where it lies to this day. So rather hard-hearted, I think. But I mentioned briefly Diana, um, the Duke's sister. So again, marriage, very, very important. She married um, Lord Bolingbroke, who had lands in Wiltshire, near, nearby Wiltshire. And on paper, it was a very good marriage. Uh, again, she did her duty and she provided him with two sons, so the line was assured. But unfortunately, um, Bolingbroke was a bully and he abused her physically and he drank and he gambled. And eventually he realised that his wife was expecting another child. He also realised that it couldn't possibly be his. And by this time, Diana had met and fallen in love with this character very fine dandy called Topham Beauclerk. And um, Bolingbroke decided that he would divorce her for criminal conversation, which I think is a wonderful term, um, which means adultery. So um, that was quite scandalous in those days. There was divorce, but an act of parliament had to be passed in order for it to be approved. So Diana married Topham Beauclerk, and that was fine. Only, again, he was a bit of a mess and he was addicted to laudanum, which is alcohol and opium mixed together. And he became increasingly dishevelled and unkempt. And in fact, when they were at Blenheim for a weekend, he boasted that he had enough lice about his person to people a parish. Now, he died um, a few years later and Diana applied to her brother for help, but it was denied. And so she actually kept heart and soul together by painting. And this portrait that you see of her on the left of your screen is actually a self-portrait. And at a time when many young ladies were taught to paint and draw, she was actually very, very talented. And um, she, because she was quite notorious, it became quite something to have a piece of her work in your collection, so she did very well. The other thing she did, um, she was commissioned by Josiah Wedgwood to design for his pottery. So, as I say, despite everything, um, despite the um, difficulties that she had with her brother, she was able to manage. And again, in those days, if you think about it, for a woman to make her own way in the world, it was quite something. Now, this is a, an interesting cartoon. I'm just going to go back a couple of slides. So we're looking at the fourth Duke and his family again. And the little boy on the left here, another George. So his father was George, he was George. And strangely enough, he also christened his eldest son, George. So he was going to become the next Duke, fifth Duke of Marlborough. 
And going back to the whole business of marriage, he was a very good catch. And so there was a, there was a, a peculiar story about a Mrs. Gunning who had two very beautiful daughters but no money who wanted to make a good match for her girls. And she decided that Lord Blanford, as he was then, and so between her daughter and herself, they concocted a whole series of false letters um, which looked as though her daughter and the Lord Blanford were engaged to be married. And furthermore, she then tried to sue him um, because he wasn't going to marry her, of course, because he didn't know anything about it. And this is a cartoon that appeared, um, and it shows the Gunnings laying siege upon Blenheim Palace. So, so this is Miss Gunning, um, that's her mother. Um, and this is the Duchess of Bedford, Caroline's mother, who had a hand in it as well. But it, it was a complete and utter farce. So, of course, the fifth Duke, who you can see here, top left, decided that the best thing to do would be to marry, but not Miss Gunning. And in fact, what happened, he had fallen in love with um, a lady called Marianne Sturt. Now, sadly, Marianne Sturt was married to someone else. And despite this, she did have a child by Lord Blandford. Um, he then did marry in order to try and forget his, his love. Um, and he also frittered away a huge amount of money. He lived at first at White Knights in Reading, um, and it's the site of, of where Reading University is to be found today. And he was a great collector, a, a bibliophile, and he collected rare orchids and all sorts of things, and he gambled. And this book that you see here um, in these three illustrations is a very rare um, edition of the Decameron, which is a book by an Italian called uh, Boccaccio. And he bought this book for, and let me just get the, the figures right for you, because they are just extraordinary. Um, he bought it for £2,260, um, which is the equivalent of about £165,000 today. So on one book. Now, unfortunately, fell into debt to the tune of, again, the equivalent of many millions today. And he had to sell the book just a year or two later. And he sold it for £918. So he made a whopping great loss on it. And um, reports of the time as well say that he had to sell almost everything. And, he and uh, the report says that 100 pair of shoes, 200 pairs of leather breeches, were taken for the settlement of bills. So this duke has gone down in history. Um, he's known as the profligate. On a personal note, when he came to Blenheim, when he eventually lived at Blenheim, um, his wife decided she had had enough, left him. And he installed his lover, a young girl called Matilda Glover, onto the estate. So um, by the time he died, he had had um, six children with his wife, Susan, six children with his young mistress, Martha Glover, and one 
the first one to Mary Ann Sturt. And if my sons are right, that's 13 of them. And he actually ended his life just living off the money from John Churchill, the first Duke's annuity that Barbara Villiers had given him. And uh, the footmen were actually bailiffs and he had to live off the game in the park and um, any fish that he could find in the lake. It was a, a very sad and sorry period in Blenheim's history. Now, his, his son, um, you can see at the bottom left here, another George, the sixth Duke of Marlborough. Um, he became Duke in due course. And um, he started off, again, thinking of, of marriage, etc. He made a fake marriage with a girl called Susanna Law. What was fake about it? Well, the fact that the ceremony was carried out by his brother and his brother was not a clergyman. So Susanna Law thought she was married to Lord Blandford as he was at the time. And then he didn't quite drop. You know, I don't know how she thought she was married when they lived together and, and whatever. Um, so that wasn't a great time in Blenheim's history either. Um, and he was a bit of a scoundrel, to least. So when he died, he actually ordered that all of his papers be burnt. So we don't have that archive, unfortunately. Um, he did spend a lot of money at, at Blenheim and he actually moved the kitchens from the kitchen courtyard, the first courtyard where you come in when you come to Blenheim, and he moved them inside the palace because he was sick of having cold food. What we can attribute to him. We're going to come on to the seventh Duke of Marlborough, and you can see a photograph here of the seventh Duke and the seventh Duchess, and they were really typical Victorians um, in any sense of the word that you can imagine. They were very prim, they were very proper, um, and they were very hardworking, I have to say. So on the right, there's the Duchess, who was Winston Churchill's granny, and she's reading a letter that was sent to her from Queen Victoria. And the letter is a tribute to the work that she did in Ireland to help relieve the suffering of um, the results of the second famine. Now, what were they doing in Ireland, I hear you ask. So let me tell you. So this is their eldest son, who was known as the Wicked Duke. And he was called the Wicked Duke by his younger brother, Randolph, who you see here. Um, the Wicked Duke, again, another George, married very well that he fell in love with a lady called Edith Aylesford. And again, that would have been absolutely fine if it wasn't for her husband. He decided that he was going to divorce his wife and marry Edith. And I mentioned before, there was divorce, but it was quite something. And it was a social no-no. It was, it was a great scandal when it happened. Um, so Randolph, thought that what he would do to prevent the divorce and prevent the scandal was to try and blackmail the Prince of Wales. So it's the Prince of Wales who later became Edward VII. Randolph had access to some letters between the Prince of Wales and Edith Aylesford. Um, she was a busy young woman and um, he threatened the Prince that 
if he didn't step in and prevent the divorce, then he would make the letters public, which was a huge mistake on his part. You know, you don't try and blackmail the royal family. So the Prince of Wales was, was incensed and he made it known that he wouldn't set foot in any home that welcomed the Spencer Churchills. And so what to do? The Duke, his father, decided that he would take up an appointment as Viceroy in Ireland. So the family took themselves over to Ireland um, and Randolph and his wife Jenny and their little boy Winston went over as well and Randolph became his unpaid secretary. And it was during this time that Francis the Duchess did all that wonderful work and did so much fundraising to help the starving in the villages around her. Um, so why was he called the Wicked Duke? Well, Randolph called him the Wicked Duke because he sold off so much of the Blenheim collection, um, mainly to fund his experiments, because he was, in fact, um, a very good scientist. And he corresponded with Edison about the development of the light bulb and the phonograph. And um, sold a lot of the Blenheim collection to, to do that. And that's how he got the name. So we're moving on again slightly to the next generation. And we come to the ninth Duke of Marlborough, um, Charles, who was the eighth Duke of Aldersley, and um, his wife and family. So he became Duke in 1892. And at the time, again, Blenheim needed a lot of money spending on it. And, and that's the thing with the palace. It's the reason we're open today. You know, it's how we use your money. You know, we, we keep the palace in good heart and we hope it's there for future generations. Now, when he became Duke, he was only 21 years old. And again, a very good catch, very eligible bachelor, fantastic title. Um, and he took the advice of his grandmother, Frances, as he was Winston Churchill's cousin, remember? So they had this granny in common. And she told him he needed to marry for money. And he, she made it quite plain that he needed to bring in at least a million pounds. You know, so in those days, again, that was quite a high target, a high goal. So what did he do? He took himself off to America and he found himself a dollar princess, which is what so many of the aristocracy did at that time. Um, he came across this beautiful woman, Consuelo Vanderbilt. They had met before. Um, so he went to her, he proposed marriage. She refused him. And him down point blank. She thought she was engaged to another man. So. You know, she was in love with someone else. Why would she want to marry the Duke, who she hardly knew? Now, her mother, Alva, um, again, we're, we're still looking at this, this thing to get your daughters married well. Now, they obviously didn't need the money because Consuelo was an incredibly wealthy heiress. But Alva really wanted her daughter to marry into the British aristocracy. So Alva took herself off to bed with a fit of the papers and palpitations and goodness knows what else. And Consuelo, who was just a young girl and very biblical, agreed to marriage. Now, this painting hangs in the red drawing room at Blenheim Palace. 
And it's right opposite the one we saw earlier of the fourth Duke and his family. Whereas the painting of the fourth Duke, jolly and it's lively and it's full of, full of joy. If you look at this one, it's a complete contrast to that. And the people just do not look happy, do they? And of course, when they were first married, the Duke wasted no time in telling Consuelo that he loved someone else. Um, so Consuelo gave the Duke an heir and despair as her terms. And um, then the two of them separated and they both found solace elsewhere. And the Duke's words were that Consuelo erred first. So she actually had an affair or had affairs with a couple of the Duke's cousins. Um, so the Duke took up with um, this lady, an American lady called Gladys Deacon. And, you know, again, that's a whole nother story. But she became the Duke's mistress. And eventually in 1921, the Duke and Consuelo were divorced. In fact, their marriage was annulled um, on the grounds that Consuelo had been coerced into it. Which is very, a very strange scenario at that time, um, given that they'd been married for so long and had had two children. Um, but nonetheless, um, they both remarried Duke married this lady, and um, I think it's it's quite accurate to say that wasn't a happy marriage either by any means. And um, they, the Duke died in 1934, or they could actually divorce. But before that, he closed the palace up. He kind of persuaded, in inverted commas, ladies to move out, and um, things just went far too worse. So, moving on, I don't want to end on a on a kind of gloomy note. So I'm going to spend a bit of time talking about one of my personal favourites, and probably one of one of two duchesses that I would really have liked to meet. And this is the tenth duchess, who um, was the grandmother of our present duke. And in fact, it's rather fitting because next month it will be seventy. No, it will be sixty since she died. Okay, my maths fell down there. Um, and this quote is a rather wonderful quote by a diarist called Chips Channon. Um, and in fact, his diaries have just been republished. And he, he knew everyone and had something to say about everyone. And this is what he said about Mary Marlborough, that she's an efficient duchess. She's handsome. She's serious minded, very English, very balanced, very conventional brings her children up in a rather snappy, almost Spartan way, and they seem to adore her. He then goes on to say, she's improved the house and enhanced the atmosphere. It's now gay and healthy, and the long corridors echo with childish laughter and screams, and huge dogs sprawl about. And, you know, I think that sums it up, and it's what Blenheim needed. And again, it's interesting to read the 10th Duke's memoirs, and he talks about when they moved to Blenheim in 1934 and how austere it was and what a state it was in after Gladys and her spaniels. And, you know, she'd let them, all 30 and 40 of them, have the run of the entire palace. So they had to really get it back into shape, and they had this young family. And you can see three of the children there. They actually had five in total. Um, and there's Lady Sarah on the right, Lady Caroline, 
and then Lord Blandford, who grew, grew up to be our 11th Duke, the last Duke. Um, and one of the little children is one hasn't been born at this stage and one of them's missing. And that's because she'd fallen over and grazed her knees and she had socking great plasters on them. And she was watching everything from the window of the bear, but she wasn't allowed to be photographed. So they came to Blenheim. And Mary went from being, you know, again, the cream of society and a socialite. And she really took her, her duties seriously and never more so than during the Second World War. So war broke out in 1939 and almost immediately a boys school was evacuated to Blenheim. So Mary had to make sure that everything was in place and everything was ready for them. She had to make sure you know, that there were blackout curtains. She had to make sure everyone had gas masks. Um, she, you know, she made sure that there were stirrup pumps and that the, the rafters in the roof had been coated with salt and lime to make them fire retardant, you know, everything. And I, I just love this letter on the right. Blenheim had its own fire brigade and it was made up of servants. And um, it's a letter about cocoa for the firemen. And it's it's... It's quite important, you know, it's nice that they looked after their comforts. It says, the penultimate paragraph, it says, as to food, the Duchess is seeing that a good big cake is at their disposal every night if they want it. So, you know, even little details like this, Mary looked after them all and, and made sure everything was, you know, as it should be. So that was throughout the war years. And then shortly after the war, few years after the war, of course, in 1952, Queen Elizabeth, our present queen, whose birthday it is today, um, she came to the throne. The coronation was the following year in 1953. And the Duke and Duchess took their place in Westminster Abbey as peers of the realm. And there's Duchess Mary carrying out that function. But of course, as soon as she, she'd finished with that, she rushed back to Blenheim, where they were having a huge ox roast for all the Woodstock people and all the locals and again you know there she is she's got her overall on she's supervising and it must have brought back to her the days of the war when she was organizing the British restaurant in Woodstock which catered you know it gave good warm cheap food to her whoever needed it you know during the war she looked after Blenheim she also sorted out accommodation for for people who were visiting children who had been evacuated to the town. Her, her efforts, her energy were absolutely endless. And the other thing she was doing during the war, again, I, I find fascinating. So she was born in 1900. In 1940, she gave birth to her fifth child, another son. In 1943, she organized her daughter's wedding. And so she was a war bride, her oldest daughter. And in 1944, she became a granny. Yeah, so you get kind of every bit of the spectrum there. It's, it's just incredible. But she was an, a supporter of the Red Cross right from the First World War when she became the VAD, a voluntary aid detachment nurse. Um, and in the bottom right-hand corner, there she is in her Red Cross uniform. And it was a uniform she designed. Um, they invited her to, to design a uniform which was a bit more business-like and a bit more attractive. And she arranged a fundraiser at Blenheim Palace. In fact, two fundraisers, two fashion shows. 
The House of Dior came to Blenheim in 1954 and in 1958, and Duchess Mary organised this. Princess Margaret was the guest of honour on both occasions, and they raised, each one of them raised about a quarter of a million pounds for the British Red Cross Society. I mean, phenomenal energy. Um, and she, she was just tireless, you know, she really was. And then in 1947, that's a picture of her while she was mayor of Woodstock. And she's pictured after a ceremony in which Winston Churchill was given the freedom of Woodstock. Um, very sadly, she died age 61. So, you know, by today's standard, absolutely no age at all. And there were all sorts of um, obituaries and all sorts of things written about her. And I must say, one of my favourite things was that in April 1949, so by then she was 49 years old, she rode pillion on a motorcycle behind a speedway rider when the new Oxford track was opened. There you are. And I have to say, of all the saints and all the sinners, my favourite saint. Well, I hope you've been able to decide which ones are the saints, which ones are the sinners, and which ones are the downright scoundrels. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Stephen Jones, the milliner. Stephen has been designing for Dior for over 20 years now, so that gives him a tenuous link with Blenheim Palace. He also found Cecil Beaton to be a great inspiration. Another link to Blenheim Palace, albeit tenuous. Do join me at the same time next week. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, then do share it with your friends and do feel free to subscribe to Behind the Scenes at Blenheim Palace. So you'll get a reminder each week telling you when the next episode's available. See you again. <laughs>